0: Apple presents events at the Apple store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Casey Cipriani of IndieWire. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Uh, thanks to the Apple store and thanks to BBC America. We are gonna start first with a trailer for the intruders and then we're gonna welcome out Mira Servino. So take a look at the trailer. Welcome back. You've been missed. This book begins at the point you began before. In another life.
1: Tonight, as I speak to you of them, I fear no one. Because this life is ours. It is not theirs.
0: just here to shepherd you. You've not been yourself.
1: Sorry, honey. I guess the music just took me away. Amy, you'll see that some of them fight it. Sometimes it takes years when the older one doesn't want to give up. If people knew,
0: it would all fall apart. People like us have responsibility, don't we? Where can we talk? Here is good. No, it's not. Sweet. You keep a secret? Amy, where are you?
1: Amy's all right. Because in the beginning there was death.
0: We do die, but we can return. Who are you? Who's your wife?
1: I'm just trying to tell you the truth.
0: The few. The very few, those who possess the will and strength the purpose. Welcome back, Reverti. Welcome back... ...again. Madison! What goes around... ...comes around. Please welcome Neera Sorvino.
1: So the show looks pretty creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, backstage someone just used the term perfectly creepy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So without giving too much away, obviously because it's kind of a mystery, um, what can you tell us about the premise of Intruders?
1: Okay, I think I can tell you what has already been in print out there sanctioned by BBC America. Uh, It centers around a secret society, sort of like the 1%, but instead of being the 1% in control of geopolitical power or money, they control the means to attaining immortality, potential immortality. Uh, And they do so by seeking refuge in the bodies of others. That's the verbiage that has been used. Um, And it's kind of about how ordinary people intersect with this very powerful group with kind of dastardly ends and uh, how it kind of tears their lives uh, asunder Um, and in the opening episode you see jack played by john sim the great british actor uh is kind of perplexed and then very afraid because his wife is acting super strange me and then i go missing so then he has this old friend, Tori Kittles, come and say, hey, there's these strange murders. I think something is up. And, and all the storylines by you know, the middle of the run of the show all intersect and all connect. And no one is as they seem. Nobody is as good or as bad as they seem, honestly. But my role, my role itself is a spoiler, so I can only answer questions judiciously. I can't really talk that much about it just off the cuff.
0: Um, it seems to be the kind of show where, um, after every episode airs, friends are going to gather together and, and talk about it and have theories about it and see if they can figure it all out. Um,
1: is there anything that, that you watch that you do that with your friends? Yeah, I have four children under 10, so we can't watch anything above PG until they go to sleep. And when they fall asleep, we're about 15 minutes behind them. So when we watch things is sometimes on some occasion where we've had caffeine at night, and then we'll binge watch a few episodes, and then we'll talk to each other about it before crashing. Or I'll talk to my husband in the morning after he crashed the night before and sort of fill him in.
0: So obviously you've had um, a remarkable film career. Um, What made you decide to now turn to television? I know you've had some guest roles on television before, but what, what helped you to make the, de- the decision to turn to a series? And and what about intruders in particular?
1: Well, first of all, I think that you know I, I used to eschew television because there was a definite divide between film work and TV work, and there were actors who did films and actors who did television work. And people came from TV and went to film, but nobody went the other way. And now that's all blown to smithereens. I mean, everybody is doing great things all over the board. And I think last year's True Detective kind of, you know, just shattered the mold. And and you just say, okay, anyone can do fantastic work anywhere. As long as the writing is good, as long as the directing is good. It doesn't have to be in the big screen. It doesn't have to be in the small screen. It's, it's, It's go with the material. And... I sort of welcome the change to work on something in a longer form. Not a super long form. It's not like 22 episodes. It's eight episodes. So you can really go deeply into these characters. Um, and But keep the potency of the storyline. I mean, we never have a boring episode. We never have someone that feels thinned out or like we've run out of ideas. Like, each episode is more thrilling than the last. Um, it's very climactic. So, uh, I don't know. I, I just felt like I was doing as good or better work than I'm able to do in film the longer it went on because I knew the characters better and they were given stranger and more fascinating scenes to play.
0: So I know you can't mention a lot of specifics about your character, but did you do... Was there anything that you did to prep for that one, that character in particular? Uh... I had without to, being
1: too well, revealing. <laughs> I had to sort of create different aspects to the role. And so they were quite different. I mean, there's like one side of the role that's very um, you know, tragic and sad and lost and conflicted and having a difficult time verbalizing to her husband what is going on inside. But she's also kind of giving up, kind of floating away. And then the other side is a much stronger... Um, passionate, Machiavellian at times, kind of above the law in her own mind, uh, but a very powerful, interesting character, um, the likes of which I've never played before. I've never done somebody like that. Most of my characters are sort of uh, undoubtedly good eggs. You know, you're like, ah, I like that girl. She's, she's a good, she's got a good heart. <laughs> this, this runs the range from good to sort of amoral, but interesting, hopefully, so. We'll see, we'll see how people respond to that. Do we wanna see
0: a clip? Let's see clip number one.
1: Amy, come on!
0: Music. I, I thought you hated jazz. It was private. I respect that. I, I, I just never heard you listen to it before at all. Well.
1: <sighs> Sorry, honey. I guess the music just took me away.
0: shooting a series in your experience uh, differed from shooting films be they larger studio films or or the tiny indie films
1: well there's a big difference from shooting a a, a studio film and a a tiny indie film because a tiny indie film is completely uh, limited in its parameters by the budget but it's also freed by the autonomy of the auteur director Um, studio films have a ton of money to do everything from effects to costumes to, like, 25 takes, you know, to an amazingly long shooting schedule, but then they also have a committee um, commenting on every artistic decision on the project. Uh, I found this was sort of very nicely in between. I felt like this is a very artistic piece, and I felt that BBC America... Really gave Glenn Morgan and Julie Gardner the chance to make something very creative. There was definite input and con- like uh, a wish for it to be high high quality, but there was also autonomy granted the artists I felt, but there was enough money to make it properly with enough time and enough space and then You know, now I'm seeing the wonderful support that BBC America gives its projects. I mean, they are really behind the show. They are really, you know, pulling out all the stops to promote it and to give it the best possible send-off. And I think that people know right now that BBC America is sort of synonymous with high-quality, intelligent, groundbreaking content on television. And it's very exciting to be a part from the inception of a completely original project that they made themselves because this is i believe it's the first time that it's a hundred percent in-house it's bbc america and bbc worldwide producing this together rather than like another production entity partnering with a bbc entity so uh we're like the flagship of the fleet sort of <laughs> i hope i can say that <laughs> but i'm excited I'm, I'm i'm really i'm really proud
0: one thing I've noticed in particular in recent years is that the quality of roles for women on TV has grown exponentially. I'm, I'm seeing so many great female characters on TV, um, more so than, I think, uh, in films lately. Uh, did did the quality of, of female roles on TV aid your decision to to go for a TV series? You don't series? really
1: think about it. I don't think about it in categories. I mean, this project came across my desk and looked really, really interesting. And then I met with Glenn and Julie, and I read part of the book, the novel on which it's based, called The Intruders by Michael Marshall Smith. And it was so fascinating, but I still didn't quite understand what was going on, so I hazarded a guess, and they were like, no... Close, but that's not really what's happening. Uh, which is maybe how people will feel during the first episode. But uh, soon all will be revealed uh, in it, all of its delicious creepiness. Um, but uh, it was so intriguing. I mean, the concept behind it is so intriguing, ultimately. What, you know, the original idea by Michael Marshall Smith and the way it's fleshed out by the series, um, with Eduardo Sanchez directing the first four episodes and Daniel Stamm directing the second four, is... Uh, it's just so good. Like, it's really, really good stuff. And and for me, it was the perfect project to to really go wholeheartedly into television with.
0: Nice. Um, I think we're going to go to the second clip now because I have a question about that one, but I want people to watch it first.
1: Amy, you're freaking me out. Wake up. Amy, 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 wake up. You're dreaming. Come on, baby. Wake up. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Amy's all right because in the beginning there was death. I love that there's like a motorcycle sound there. I'm like, where's the motorcycle? <laughs> the whole floor is rumbling. But the nine, the number nine, is important. I noticed. Yes, it's a very important number in this show. So can you tell us what you're saying? I'm saying this is not my house in the country. Uh, you know, a dacha in um, in Russian is uh, is like a it's like a country house.
0: So did you know did you know Russian prior, or did you have to learn? I
1: knew a little bit because I had shot a film with Gabriel Byrne and Armin Miller stahl called Leningrad, um, which is actually a really good film that. I don't think anyone in the United States has ever seen, um, <laughs> but it's really good. It's about the siege of Leningrad. It's it's not light fare, but it's it's good. It's good. Uh, and I lived in Russia for four months, and so I picked up some, but not not a lot. So I had to work with a Russian coach on all the Russian dialogue that they had me say. This is not the end of the Russian dialogue. There's other scenes where I've got like a whole story that I'm telling in Russian. And finally I asked Glenn, I was like, listen, I know you've got a few more languages that I speak. Could one of them be a language I actually do speak? Because I speak five languages, just none of these. What are they? uh, Well, there's English. And then (laughs) French, uh, Mandarin, Chinese, uh, Spanish, and Italian. You know, so... uh, they they switched one of them to Italian to to humor me, which was I was uh, so grateful for. And
0: you learned all of these languages for anything uh, I learned anything Spanish in particular, a little
1: bit in school, and then I shot Barcelona in Spain. And while I was there, I studied uh, Spanish the whole time, and then I lived in Spain again and shot another movie there. So I kept sort of teaching myself. And then Italian, I am half Italian, and my grandparents spoke it. And so I took some Italian in college, and then I... Took it in Italy when I made *Triumph of Love* with Bernardo Bertolucci and Claire Peplow and Ben Kingsley, and that's a that's a great movie, by the way. I'm sure you can get it on iTunes. <laughs> I hope so. Um, and uh, and then I studied again in California. So and then Chinese. I was a Chinese major, Chinese Studies major at Harvard. Uh, Chinese Studies basically was like East Asian languages and civilizations was the name of the major, but it was basically Chinese culture. And I took French for eight years and. Um, junior high school and high school
0: I just helped some lost Italian tourists out front before getting here so I'm very proud of myself that I nice. remember my Italian <laughs> um, that's a good segue into kind of talking about um, your career in general um, and some of your past projects one of my absolute favorite projects and maybe the audience is a huge fan of this film too is Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion you guys love that movie as much as I do um, It. it, it for, especially for girls my age, it's kind of like turned into a cult classic at this point. Do you get people ever coming up to you on the street like saying lines from that I movie? Have. And
1: I had a girl come up to me at uh, the Louvre Museum in Paris and say, I'm the Mary. And I was like, Ex- excuse me, because it was so out of context. She said, I'm the Mary. I was like, "Oh, you're the man." Ba- okay, okay. So I'm the Rhoda. Great. Okay, wonderful. Uh, but I was sort of blown away because that was the first time it had happened. It's happened since then, but but I was in a foreign country and some stranger was approaching me, and I realized it had achieved a level of cultness because when I was a kid, we used to quote, and I'm aging myself by saying this, but uh, you know, people used to quote Animal House. We used to do lines from Animal House or you know, other, you know, Coming to America or you know all these you know movies that were big then. And and Goodfellas and and now, you know here we were being quoted. It was it was an exciting moment.
0: Um, One thing I love about Romy is kind of her voice combo accent, and and you also had an intriguing voice accentish kind of thing uh, in Mighty Aphrodite. when you, when you get a character, uh, how do you uh, decide with the director if, if your character is going to have kind of a quirky voice, and then, and then how do you develop it?
1: Well, Woody told me after I had my call back, he said, you know, if we do this, I might want you to ha- work on a bit of a voice, because not only is she cheap, but she's stupid. And so the voice had to convey sh- vulgarity and stupidity in the same <laughs> fell swoop. Um, but I also saw her as lovable, so I wanted to put like a cuteness, a stra- like a muppetiness, in there, you know. Um, and I just worked for a while on different voices, and I tried them out in public. And I finally, when I hit upon the voice, I spent like a month in character, walking around New York, and then taking a train to Philadelphia in it, and spending days in the character and buying things in it, and. Meeting strangers in it, you know, just to kind of solidify it. I don't have the time or luxury to be that methody anymore, but uh, that's what I used to do. And Romy was based on my sister Amanda's voice, uh, the way she used to talk. We grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, although I was born in Manhattan. I know that it says on the internet that I was born and raised in New Jersey, but I moved there when I was three, so technically I'm a represent. native New Yorker. <laughs> um, uh, but even though we lived in New Jersey, my sister spoke like she was from the San Fernando Valley. So, you know, okay, right. You know, she used to talk like that. And then I just made it lower for Romeo. I was like, okay, (laughs) all right, Michelle, you know, like, and just sort of slowed it down a little bit to slow down the brain a little. (laughs) But the the great thing about them as characters is that they think they're smart. You know, and that's the thing about like dumb buddy comedies is that the protagonists always think they're smart. They're just not. But that's their foible. It's like they're dumb, but they don't know they're dumb. (laughs) (laughs) But I've done, I do a lot of voices, a lot of my different, if you go through, I mean, I do a lot of uh, dialects. A lot of the work I've done is regional stuff. I mean, if you watch Triumph of Love, that's like an RP British accent that I learned from a Rada teacher and worked on it and worked on it and had Ben Kingsley's stamp of approval on it. And, you know, I'm, I'm very particular with my
0: voices. Besides your sister, have you ever based an accent on uh, anyone else that you've ever encountered? Or, or a character, even?
1: Uh, yes, actually, I have my friend right here, Champagne Joy. Uh, there she is. Uh, the creator of television's *Cancerland*, right there, uh, amazing, amazing breast cancer survivor, stage four, one of the most incredible people I've ever known. I did a movie w- directed by Brooks Branch um, uh, called *Multiple Sarcasms*, sort of embarrassing title, uh, in which I based the idea of the character—not you know—not to a T, but like the idea of it on champagne, actually.
0: Um, moving, I, you come from. Uh sort of a, a legacy family, I guess I would call it. Um, can you tell us about um, how your, your career or your choices have been influenced by your dad's career,
1: I think anyway? Well, I think that just watching him grow up and be such a fine character actor and put so much attention into the work that he did creating his characters, the, 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 the artistry of it, um, really impressed me, and I saw it as like a noble... A noble pursuit like it was very honorable the way that he would create these characters and work with real people in order to develop the people he was playing and and i just thought wow that's something i want to aspire to i did not have like a matinee idol movie star dad i had a great actor dad and that's what i wanted to be and i always used to say as a kid like if i could be an actor who worked all the time but was not famous that would be my dream and that's sort of now what I am. <laughs> I, I used to be really famous. And then I sort of went underground for a while. And now I'm sort of back, but I'm not as famous as I was, which I kind of like. Because when I was at the height of being super famous, it was kind of miserable, I have to tell you. Like, being in the public eye that much is not happiness-inducing for me. It might be for some, but for me, it, it made me feel kind of panic-attacky. And uh, I had I felt like I had to escape. Um, and now I have, I think, this very, very wonderful life Work balance with my home life and my kids and my husband being like the the most important thing in the world to me, and then my career being a great career, but it has its place in my life as like it's my work, but it's not the definition of who I am, which makes me very happy. And I think that's kind of how my dad had it. So, do you have a favorite performance of his? Yeah, I, it's a it's a TV movie that he did when I was a kid um, called Dummy, where he played a deaf lawyer, a deaf trial lawyer, based on a real person named Lowell Myers. And he met with Lowell Myers and spent a lot of time with him. And then in the story, he's defending a deaf, mute young man, played by LeVar Burton, who's accused of rape and murder. And it takes place over 20 years. So the character of Lowell Myers went profoundly deaf at 12. So that means from the age of 30 to 50 that he covered in the story he was 20 years further down the road of when he lost his hearing in the first place. Uh, And the longer a person is from the time that they lost their hearing, the more they lose their ability to speak clearly. They lose their plosives and their consonants. And, And so he worked with deaf children and he worked with deaf adults developing different stages of deaf speech, which I just thought was so incredible. And he went to the Lexington School for the Deaf and spent a lot of time there and worked with the real man himself. And I just thought it was so you know, noble, I don't know. Something about his dedication to it was so beautiful to me. And then seeing it, it's such a powerful performance. And he has this incredible courtroom scene um, where he has this incredible, you know, final plea to the jury. And it takes, it's like five minutes long. And it's almost all shot in one piece. And so I said to dad recently, because I saw it again on television, I was like, dad, how many takes did you have to do that soliloquy, that, that monologue? And he said, one. I was like, one? Yeah, I learned it in the dressing room right before I walked out. So so the fascinating thing about that is like he works on the character and all the elements of the character and builds it so that that person is very real. So then give him the lines. They'll go into his prodigious, prodigious brain and and then he'll come out with this very fresh, organic thing that was not based on laboring it and painstakingly saying, "And on that moment, I'm going to do that." And no, it's all very free and real because he already is the person now. And I was, but I was still blown away that it was one take. I was like, "Dad, come on, one t- one take. That was it." <laughs> so kind of
0: related to that, I know there are probably a lot of aspiring actors that will that are either in the audience or will listen to the podcast. Um, do you what what advice can you give to you know the up and comers who who aspire to have a career like yours?
1: Uh, they should study. Should definitely study acting. I would recommend the Meisner technique. That's what my whole family has been through. My dad actually studied with Sanford Meisner, and then with Bill Esper. He and my mom met each other in Bill Esper's class. I studied with Bill Esper and then Win Handman. Uh, my first. Teacher was my dad as a child, and I have to say he gave me the fundamentals of real acting, of organic, truthful acting. Um, but believe in yourself. You have to believe that you can achieve your dreams in acting. Otherwise, you never will, because it is a very rejecting business. It's a very uh, soul-excoriating business at times, because you know you're only as good as your last project. You're only as good as your your box office. You're only as good as the casting director decides. That they're even going to let you in to see the people who really make the decisions. I mean, there's this whole period of time in a young actor's life where they never get to see the director or the producer because it's just the casting people like, nah, no, no, they they they're not right for it. Uh, But you can't let that stop you. You go on every open call. You go on every backstage audition. You take every job that you get, like any, any little small read-through of a play. Each one is experienced. Each thing will give you something. Every experience of, of creating a character and playing it, even in a, a staged reading, gives you a new level of accomplishment and knowledge of the actual doing of it. Uh, I remember I, I once did just a reading of a Juliet monologue at a, at a benefit... Uh, for my teacher, Wynne Handman, um, and I really learned a great deal about Romeo and Juliet, and I was already past the age that I could really play Juliet, but just by working on that one monologue and getting it to performance level to do in front of a crowd of people at a dinner um, gave me an immense uh, new piece of knowledge about performing Shakespeare um, and, and, and something about the character of Juliet. So do everything you can and believe that you will make it and you will, to some extent, if you really believe it and you keep honing it and you keep listening to the people who know what they're talking about in terms of truthful acting. You have to make sure that you're open to those criticisms and that you know you really learn how to leave yourself alone and work from your true insides rather than pushing things or manipulating them from the exterior. You really have to use your own, your own emotions. Um, you can spur them on in a variety of ways, but they have to be truthful, they have to be real. Uh, I think that's a good segue into asking audience questions. So
0: we've got a couple of people with microphones on the side. Just raise your hand. Are you a funny person or like a more like a serious drama person? Then do you want to do comedy again because I want to see you you know, really funny you know, movie? Then also do you want to make family-friendly movies for your children? Thank you so much.
1: Sure. I do still love to do comedy. I definitely enjoy doing comedy more than anything else because you just have you just have so much fun on a set when you're when you're in a comedy. Everybody's laughing. The whole purpose of it is to uplift people and make them laugh. So, so it's definitely a little bit more fun than any other kind of genre. Um, that being said, I love the dramatic challenges inherent in something like Intruders, which gave me like acting challenges like none I'd ever had before. Um, But uh, yes, so I do want to do comedies. I did a recent comedy uh, called Union Square. It's like a dramedy, but it's quite funny at times. So I would definitely recommend that if you like my comedies. Uh, Directed by Nancy Savoca. It came out last year, I believe. Um, And then, okay, family-friendly movies. I have made a few sort of more kids' movies. Uh, Some of them have ended up, I think, not having like a big, big screen release. They had smaller ones. One is called Space Warriors. Um, with Dermot Mulroney, and it's about uh, a team of teenagers who save uh, cosmonauts on the space station. And uh, I got my kids to actually go to space camp when I was shooting it, because there's like an astronaut training camp in uh, Alabama, and that was really cool. Uh, I did another movie. (laughs) I did a Christmas movie called Finding Mrs. Claus for television. And I did it expressly for my children because nothing I make they can really watch generally. Usually it's rated R. And their favorite piece of cinema is my father in something called Santa Baby Christmas Maybe, where he plays Santa Claus. And when I got this script where it was, all about Mrs. Claus and it was this very cute story involving a girl in Las Vegas and all this stuff. I just decided okay, I have to do this for my kids and that's also a comedy. So that that's a lot of fun. It's very cute. It's not like high art. It's just cute. Um, so Maybe Romy and Michelle's 20 year high school reunion? Look, we'd all love to do it. I mean, who knows? Maybe it will happen. We would love that.
0: Uh, a compliment to start with on your work, um, your uh, human rights advocacy work um, in the area of sex slavery. I think it's Wonderful what you've done. I have three daughters. so, Um, And I just wondered if you could maybe update us a little bit on your work in that area and if there are any initiatives that you're planning over the next year.
1: Um, Okay. So uh, I'm not working with Amnesty anymore. I did work with them for three years. Uh, Since 2009, I've been the UNODC Goodwill Ambassador to Combat Human Trafficking. That's the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. So I am basically the Goodwill Ambassador for the UN on human trafficking. And I've been working with them... You know, extensively for five years across the globe, uh, doing something called the Blue Heart Campaign, which is an awareness and action fomenting campaign on modern day slavery. But also, I do a lot. Uh, domestically on state legislation versus modern slavery. Um, None of our states is whole when it comes to our legislative response to human trafficking, whereas our federal TVPA laws are pretty good, but federal laws only cover foreign nationals or people um, crossing the border. So if something happens in Tennessee, then Tennessee laws cover it. And there's no state in the union that is 100% on the way that it responds to modern day slavery. Uh, something I specifically work quite a lot on is, is uh, called uh, safe harbor laws, which are for the changing of the lens by which we view minors in sexual exploitation, commercial sexual exploitation. Basically, the UN and um, the federal government see anyone under the age of 18 in commercial sexual exploitation as a victim of human trafficking of the severest form. Um, but a lot of law enforcement across the country still sees them as criminals guilty of the crime of prostitution. And that's just ridiculous uh, because a child and a teenager cannot actually legally consent to their own sexual exploitation for money. It's not actually in their capacity. They're not adults and they don't have that capacity. So even if someone says, I'm doing this of my own choice, it is not actually a choice that they have made by their own volition. It's a choice that's been pressed upon them by hardship or economic... Uh, necessity, and uh, unscrupulous adults who are taking advantage of them, both the the pimps and the johns. Um, So that's something I... I, That safe harbor legislation is a bundle of laws that decriminalizes the minor, gives them access to services, because right now, shockingly, uh, sexual trafficking is not seen as a form of extreme child abuse or neglect. So if you're a child sex trafficking victim, the state that you're living in does not immediately give you access to funds for medical care, schooling, housing, uh, clothing, counseling, anything that you need because you're not seen as a victim of child abuse, which obviously what worse abuse could there be? Um, But that changes with the safe harbor laws. It also gives them access to civil remedy and uh, raises the penalty for pimp traffickers and Johns to much, much higher levels so that it's a crime commensurate with the most serious crimes like rape or arson or murder. and it expunges their criminal records, which is one of the very most important things because without doing that, psychologically, the child is always scarred by this feeling that they have been branded a criminal as as a child, uh, and it follows them throughout their academic career. If they have one, it follows them throughout their professional job hunt because any time a background check is done, if that has not been expunged, they are seen as having a serious criminal record and they usually don't get the job. Um, so that's something I work on. I did the CNN Freedom Project documentary Every Day in Cambodia, which is about child sex tourism in Cambodia, specifically virgin sales. I wrote a whole blog on the CNN Freedom Project blogspot that you can go and read. It was like an online journal. Um, I represented UNODC at the Vatican in April which was amazing. I was so heady and scary. Uh, I had to speak before this whole assembled group of cardinals and bishops and archbishops and law enforcement from around the world, the heads of Europol, Interpol, uh, people from the FBI, CIA, uh, police chiefs from around the world. It was it was an amazing experience. And at the very end, the Pope came in and um, apparently read all of our speeches in private, which I hope he did. I don't know. I wrote it for him, and I had to change it all because I thought he was going to be in the room when I gave the speech, and then I had to change it to for you, your you know, Your Holiness to. He, you know, um, but uh, afterwards, you know, he gave us all a blessing, and he's been very hardline about human trafficking, which has been amazing. Uh, So that was an incredible honor to be in that room of such high influence. Um, That was pretty amazing to have been given that responsibility by the UN. So, yeah, I'm always doing something on it. think new things come up every month that I'm getting involved in. I work with Polaris Project, and that's a great organization. Like, if you want to get involved in anti-slavery work and you don't know where to start, you can go to the polarisproject.org website and you can find what's happening in my state, like in New York City, who's doing anti-trafficking work? How do I get involved? Or what legislation needs passing in my state? How do I lobby for its passage? Um, But there's ECPAT USA, if you're specifically interested in in, uh, child trafficking, child sexual trafficking. There's CAST LA, the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. Uh, There are so many amazing groups out there working. And slavery is not going to stop until we all make it stop. And it's not going to stop also until the consumer at the point of sale says, I need to know whether what I'm buying today has been touched by slave hands, whether there's any slavery in the supply chain. And that's something that's kind of newly kind of growing but some companies are really doing a good job of vetting their supply chain, but there needs to be a mandatory exterior audit that comes in and says, hey, we found a third-party uh, contractor that is hiring hiring—you know, guys who are keeping people tied to their workstations and don't pay them. Uh, you need to clean up your act. Um, so that's not going to happen until the consumer says, I won't buy things unless I know they're slavery-free, just like you can say now, I'm only going to buy organic food. So...
0: Oh, I've been a big fan of yours ever since Mighty Aphrodite, I must say. Here I am. Um, you're obviously known as, a, as just a phenomenal actor, but I'm curious, do you have any projects of your own you're, you're developing behind the camera as a writer or as a producer? I was thinking of Lisa Kudrow's Web Therapy, and I'm actually, I don't know if you've even appeared on that. Have you ever been invited to be on that I'm just curious, because I know you obviously have the... I'd love
1: to. Um, You know, our paths have diverged just because of geography and family stuff. And, you know, I I, I love seeing Lisa every time I do. I haven't been invited on it yet, but hopefully there will be a a, a time and a day for that. But um, uh, I've written little things at home. Uh, uh, My dad and I have a cooking show in the works. Maybe that's going to happen. That's exciting. Um, But uh, I have four kids under 10. So really taking on writing, producing, and directing right now. I mean, I've, I've produced a couple of projects in the past. i produced a movie called Lisa Picard is Famous. And I think the title eventually just changed to Famous. Uh, Griffin Dunn directed it. Um, it went to the Cannes Film Festival. It was a terrific little comedy. But it also came out the week of September 11th. So no one saw it, sadly. But it was great. It was a great little movie. And I really enjoyed doing it. But just producing that took two years, and if I were to be an auteur director, which is what I would want to be, to like write and direct my own stuff, that's like a three-year proposition, really, and I just can't do that to my kids right now or to myself, because I don't want to kind of cheat myself out of my kids at this moment. I already have to work. I'm not like independently wealthy, so I do have to continue being an actress, um, and not that I don't love being an actress, but to take on the concept of all of a sudden now, being a a writer-director would really take me away from my little kids. And and I think there's time enough for that when they're in college. I think I'll have more stories to tell, too. I always feel like a director shouldn't direct until they have a burning desire to, that they have something they have to say.
0: Well, I've got to get going because I cut my foot before and my shoe shoe is is filling filling up with with blood.
1: blood.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you to Mira Sorvino. (laughs) Thank 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 you to BBC America. Thank you, Apple Store. Watch the show,
1: it's creepy.